Let's pray. Father, truly we have come together to worship a holy God. You are not a God who um, sweeps sin under the rug. Lord, that is not the kind of God you are. You are not a God who forgives and forgets without anybody paying the price. Lord, you are a holy God. You are a just judge. You demand a penalty to be paid for crimes committed against your holiness. And yet, Lord, um, you are also a loving God. How can you be holy and loving at the same time? Well, we see it in the cross that out of your love you sent your Son to pay the penalty in our place, that you, God, became a man, that you would, would be willing to take that penalty upon yourself in the person of your Son is truly something that, that we will be meditating on and praising you for for all of eternity without it ever growing old. That is a song we will sing forever and ever through all of the ages left to come. Um, when we come into that world where the, the sun does not set, the glory of the Lord is the light by which we live, um, we will forever be singing your praises because of the fact that you are holy and loving and you have accomplished our salvation through your Son. And Lord, uh, help, us, help us to live in the light of that truth more and more, we pray. Um, Lord, we also sang that uh, the request that the passion of the church would be the glory of your name. And I truly pray that that would be true here in New Woodstock Community Church, that your glory would be the passion of our lives, Lord, and that your righteousness would be the, the flame that burns within our hearts. And we pray that as we come to your word this morning, that your Holy Spirit would work through your word to kindle that flame within our hearts, to kindle that passion for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Last Sunday, we began looking at what the church is, and we are continuing that study here, what the church is and what it means to be a member of the church. Biblically speaking, the age in which we live is the church age. And according to the Bible, when you take into account the genealogical data provided for us in the book of Genesis, we find, in connection with other events in the Old Testament, when we come to the New Testament and we consider when the church began and where we are today in the church age, we find that the church age covers a full third of creation history. That for as long as the universe has been in existence, the church age covers a full third of that time. The biblical genealogies tell us that from the time of Adam, who was created on the sixth day of creation, from the time of Adam to the time of Abraham was roughly 2,000 years. And the time from Abraham to the time of Jesus was roughly another 2,000 years. And we know the time from Jesus and when the church began up until today has been another roughly 2,000 years. So a full third of creation history has been the church age. And this serves to illustrate that the church is not an insignificant blip in history. God has been pleased to interact with his creation through the instrumentality of the church 
for a full two millennia. And the mission of the church that Jesus commissioned is yet in process. We are still to be carrying out that mission 2,000 years in. It is not yet completed. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 28 before he ascended. He said, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. God desires, as it says in Ephesians 3, verses 10 through 11, God desires that his manifold wisdom be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places in accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord. Therefore, because that is what our God desires, it is critically important that we understand what the church is and what our place in that church is. We exist and have been redeemed in order to glorify God in our lives. And if God desires for that glory to come to him through our involvement in the church, then we need to get busy knowing how the church is to function, what the church is, what the mission of the church involves. God has given us the immense privilege of bringing him glory in his church and making known the gospel to the world. So let's not pass that up. Let's seek to understand how we are to live. And today we're continuing to learn about that. We're continuing to learn about what the church is and what our place is in it. And we went through a couple questions last week, and we're going through another couple questions today. And the first question is, where is Christ's church? Where is Christ's church? That might seem like a silly question. You're saying, Josh, you're looking at it. It's right in front of you. But the question seems less silly when we consider how the scriptures speak about the church. Because the scriptures speak of the church in a couple of different senses. We see the church described in the Bible in a universal sense, and we see the church described in a local sense. And first we're going to look at that broader, all-encompassing sense in which the Bible speaks about the church. And that is the universal church. Scripture speaks at times of the people of God, the assembly of God, the church, in a universal sense. What do I mean by universal? I'm not trying to sound new age. That's not what I mean. When I say universal, I'm talking about how the church encompasses all believers in Christ who have lived in the church age from the day of Pentecost all the way until the day of judgment, including you and I today. And it includes those believers in the church who have died and are residing in heaven and those of us who remain on the earth today. The universal church encompasses all of that. And I want to show you in a couple places in Scripture where Scripture speaks of the church in this way. Let's go to Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9 and verse 31. There Luke records for us 
So the church, notice the church, singular, not churches, the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria enjoyed peace being built up and going on in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it, the church, continued to increase. So the church, singular, is said to be spread throughout regions. So that's talking a much broader idea than just the local church. Next, let's go to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 22. I'm going to follow this passage up with another one. But verse 22, And he, God the Father, put all things in subjection under his, Christ's, feet, and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Obviously, Paul there is writing about the fact that Jesus is head not only over the church in Ephesus, but over the whole church, the universal church. He is the head. Next, uh, I already referred to it, but chapter 3 of Ephesians. Chapter 3, verse 8, Paul writes, To me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ and to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. So Paul was tasked by the Lord to reveal the mystery of God in the church to Gentiles. He says that up in verse 8, to preach to the Gentiles. That's a broader category than just the Gentiles in Ephesus. He's talking about all the Gentiles. So again, the church takes on a more universal aspect there, broader than just the local church. Next, let's go to chapter 5 of Ephesians. Chapter 5, verse 25. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. Jesus is going to present to himself the church. And it's not only the Ephesian church who Peter was writing this letter to, but the whole church, the universal church, every believer in the worldwide church is going to be presented to Jesus. So these references, as you see, to the church go beyond a local congregation. It's an all-encompassing sort of idea that is being held out to us here. These are sweeping statements that encompass all of Christ's redeemed people across the entire church age. Finally, let's go, well, not finally, but second to finally, let's go to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. And the key verse 
in this passage is verse 18, where he says that Jesus is the head of the body, the church. But notice what that phrase is surrounded by. Look at what Paul is saying surrounding that verse. Go up to verse 15, speaking about Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross, Through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. You see, verse 18, where it speaks of Jesus being the head of the body, the church, that phrase is set in the context of these enormous statements that are universal in scope, showing us that that statement about the church is also to be taken in such a scope, a universal scope. And then lastly, let's go to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12, starting in verse 22. The preacher writes, But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to myriads of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood, which speaks better than the blood of Abel. Verse 23 sets the church in the middle of this heavenly scene, and the people of the church are described as being enrolled where? In heaven. This passage seems to indicate that the church, in its universal sense, transcends the here and now to include believers in the church who have died and gone before us and now reside in heaven. They are also part of the church in this universal sense. This helps us to see that the universal church is a spiritual reality. It speaks of our spiritual union in Jesus Christ. Remember last week how we looked at the Greek word that is translated as church in your Bibles, the word ekklesia. And we saw how it generally means assembly or congregation. Its focus is on the gathering together of God's called out people. Well, the question is, how can believers from today assemble with believers who have been dead for 2,000 years? Or how can believers in America assemble together with believers living in China? How can we be said to be the church, to be the assembly of God's people when we cannot physically gather together with those people? Well, though we can't physically congregate together with them, yet we are gathered together in who? Jesus Christ. He is the one in whom we find our unity. And he is the one who is bringing us 
to be with himself in the new heavens and the new earth for all of eternity. We are gathered together, spiritually speaking, in Jesus Christ. We belong to the same universal church if we are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. What that means is that, say, persecution arose here in New Woodstock, and it drove us from this place, and the point came to where we couldn't physically come together anymore. Well, we would still be the church in this universal sense, because not even persecution can dissolve the togetherness that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, how does one join the universal church? the universal body of Christ. Well, we've actually already seen this back in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 12 to 13. That tells us how it is that we have become as believers part of this spiritual body, the church. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 12, Paul brings in this metaphor of the body to describe the church. He says, For even as the body is one, and yet has many members or many body parts, and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one spirit, or in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. The moment that you were born again, the moment that you took those first spiritual breaths of new life, being repentance and faith, believing in Jesus Christ to be your Lord and Savior, believing that Jesus did all that was necessary to save you, to save sinners by the righteous life that he lived, by the atoning death he performed on the cross for sinners, and by his glorious resurrection that he accomplished for the justification of sinners. The moment you put your trust in him, as that kind of a Savior and a Lord, Jesus baptized you with the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit united you to the body of Christ. That is how you became a member of the universal church. It happened the moment of your conversion. Every born-again believer in Jesus Christ is automatically made a member of the universal church. And the question I pose to you is this, are you a member of the universal church? Has God opened your eyes to see your need for the Savior? Have you turned from your sins and put your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ? Because if so, you are a member of the universal church, but if you have not, then you are not. Have you come to see Christ as your all in all? Someone you're willing to sell everything for, lose everything for. If you haven't, ask God to open your eyes. Ask him to grant you repentance and faith in Christ. And cry out to him for mercy, and he will make you a part of his people, the universal church. So that's the universal church. But what about the local church? Well, when we read Scripture, we find that Scripture also speaks of the church in this local sense. That is, addressing a particular group of believers who are located in a specific geographical area. 
And I want to show you this from the scriptures. Let's go to Romans chapter 16. We're seeing this other sense in which the scriptures speak of the church. Romans 16, starting in verse 3. Paul is speaking of a couple of individuals here. He says, verse 3, Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who for my life risked their own necks, to whom not only do I give thanks, but also all the churches of the Gentiles. Notice the plural, the churches of the Gentiles. Verse 5, also greet the church that is in their house. So you see the very local sense in which Paul is speaking of the church here. It's different than what we saw a little earlier about the universal church. Next, let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. In verse 2, Paul alerts us to who he's writing to. 1 Corinthians 1 verse 2, he says, To the church of God, which is at Corinth. Now, when he starts out saying the church of God, you kind of expect him to be talking about the universal church. But then he says the church of God, which is at Corinth. You see, the universal church of God has a local expression in Corinth, just as it has a local expression here in New Woodstock. I won't go there, but you could go to Galatians chapter 1 and verse 2 where you see multiple churches referenced within this region called Galatia. You could go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 1, the church of the Thessalonians. All of these are references to the local church, distinct from the universal church. The local church is a physical and a local manifestation of the universal church. So you can't walk down the street to the universal church. You can't physically gather together with the whole universal church, which spreads across millennia and across continents and has members who are in heaven and who are on earth. You just can't. The only way that you can interact or gather with the universal body of Christ is through interacting and gathering with the local expression of that body, the local church. That's the local church, and we're going to fill out our understanding of the local church as we continue. But let's get to our second question. So we talked about where is Christ's church, but next we're going to ask of the scriptures, what is a member of Christ's church? What is a member of Christ's church? As I've mentioned before, as we've worked our way through 1 Corinthians 12, the word member that pops up all throughout that chapter is the Greek word melos, and it means a part of the human body, a part of the human body. It can be translated as member, it can be translated as part or limb. Paul uses that word in 1 Corinthians 12, member, figuratively, to describe your relationship to Christ as being a member of his body, but he also uses that word to describe your relationship to other believers, that you are a body part of Christ together with other body parts of Christ, and together you form the whole body of Christ. 
Now, when we use the word membership, we're simply referring to the state of being a member. That's what membership means, the state of being a member or a body part of the church. So is membership in the Bible? Is there anywhere in the Bible where it talks about the state of being a member of the body of Christ? Yes, we've just been walking through that the past couple months in 1 Corinthians 12. It's a whole chapter devoted largely to the topic of church membership. Now, there are two aspects of church membership. There are two aspects of being a body part of the church. And we need to see these in the scriptures. First is positional membership. Positional membership. We saw how the scriptures speak of the church in a universal sense and a local sense. Well, the scriptures also speak of believers in two related senses. First, as being a member in the universal church. And second, as being a member in the local church. Now, when I say positional membership, I'm referring to how Scripture speaks of believers as being members of the universal church. That's what we're talking about here. Positional membership, being a member of the universal church. Now, remember, how do we become a member of the universal church? Anybody remember? Yes, yes, seeking Jesus as Lord and Savior. The moment you were converted, you were made a member of the universal church. The moment you were saved, you became a member of the church in its universal sense. The moment you were converted, you were automatically and spiritually positioned or placed in the body of Christ as a member belonging to him. Hence, what, what I mean when I say positional membership. God positioned you in the body of Christ the moment you were saved. For that, let's go to Ephesians chapter 2. I don't want you to just take my word for it. This is what the Bible teaches. The moment you were saved, you were joined to the body of Christ. Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy... Because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. Now, you see that language. He's not using the language that we've seen in other places, being baptized in the body of Christ, but the same reality is being explained here. We were joined to Christ in our salvation. We were made alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Verse 6, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. We have been positioned or placed in Christ Jesus. And that happened the moment we were saved. Further down in that chapter, verse 11 this again speaks to that same reality, chapter 2, verse 11. Therefore remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ. As unbelievers, we were separate from Christ. 
excluded from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And the rest of that chapter continues to speak of that reality, that we have been joined together in Christ and that we, we enter into that blessed state the moment that we are saved. If you want to look up another portion of scripture where you see that, you can look up Colossians chapter 1, verses 21 to 23. It says much the same thing. God has positioned you. He has placed you in Christ and in his universal church. And he did it the moment you were born again. The moment you exercised repentance and faith in Christ. When you became a believer, you were immediately positioned as a member of Christ's universal church. So that's positional membership. But now we need to talk about participating membership. Participating membership. When I say participating membership, I'm referring to how Scripture speaks of believers as being members of the local church. The local church. As we saw earlier, it's not possible for us as finite beings to, in any normal sense, gather together with the universal church. We cannot interact with long-dead believers. We cannot meaningfully interact with believers on the other side of the world. As creatures, we cannot transcend time and space. Yet, this is the interesting thing, we have a great number of commands given to us in the scriptures about how we are to participate in the church. Things that we are expected by the Lord to do with reference to the church. And these are commands that you cannot obey with respect to the universal church. They can only be obeyed with respect to the local church. For example, turn with me to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. We're going to see a bunch of commands that you really cannot obey with reference to the universal church. They have to be obeyed in the local church. Otherwise, they can't be obeyed. Romans 12, verse 10. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. We could read this whole chapter, but drop down to verse 16. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. I can't do that with the universal church. I cannot associate with someone who's been dead for 2,000 years. I cannot associate with someone who's on the other side of the world in any meaningful sense, but I can associate with the lowly here in this church. Next, uh, let's turn over to 1 Corinthians 12. 1 Corinthians 12, starting in verse 24. <clears throat> partway through the verse, says, But God has so composed the body, giving more abundant honor to that member which lacked. Verse 25, So that 
there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. Just as an example, our sister Tiffany snapped her ankle very badly. If she was over in China, there is no way that we can suffer with her in a meaningful sense. There's no way that we can have the same care for her that we can have for one another here. It's only in the local church that we can do what Paul is calling us to do in these verses. Next, let's go to Galatians chapter 6. Or wait, before you go there, go to 1 Corinthians 16. Go to the end of 1 Corinthians 16 and verse 20. Paul says, all the brethren greet you, and then look at what he commands. Greet one another with a holy kiss. In our culture, it's more like a holy handshake, but you get the idea. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Again, I cannot do that with a believer over in China, but I can do that with you here. Next, Galatians chapter 6. Galatians chapter 6, verse 2. We're commanded to bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. Again, really hard anywhere but the local church. Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians 5. Verse 18, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father, and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. And this is what we've been doing this morning. We've been singing, singing to one another, worshiping the Lord together. We've been speaking to one another in this way. That's only possible as a local church gathering together. And again, being subject to one another. The only way I can live that out is if I'm physically relating to you. I can't do that to you if, if you're not here. Hopefully you're getting the picture um, as one last clear example, let's go to Hebrews chapter 3. Or excuse me, chapter 13. Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews 13, verse 17. There he says, Obey your leaders and submit to them for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. I, I can't obey my leaders in a universal sense. There'd be far too many leaders to try to keep track of what they're telling me to do. I, that, this only makes sense in the context of the local church. And how can a leader watch over my soul 
if I'm not among where that leader is. It's impossible. You see, and there's a whole, this is just a smattering of commands like that in Scripture. You and I cannot obey these commands with respect to the universal church. We must obey them with respect to the local church. And just referring back to 1 Corinthians 12, where Paul brings in that metaphor of the church being a body. That metaphor that Paul uses in that chapter completely falls apart if it is not understood in a local church context. You are a body part of the body of Christ only insofar as you are in connection with the other body parts that make up that body of Christ. If you're not a part of the body, you cannot be a body part. Does that make sense? You're unable to connect in a tangible way to all the members of the universal church, but you are able to connect in a tangible way to all the members of a local church. Jesus is the head of a body. He's the head of the universal church, but he's also the head of the local church. A head with only a finger attached and no other body parts is not a body. A Christian who is off on his own not connected in any meaningful way to a local church, is unable to live out the body life that Paul is calling us to in 1 Corinthians 12. If I'm off on my own or if I'm jumping from church to church, never being committed to a local congregation, I cannot obey what I'm commanded in 1 Corinthians 12. When the Lord saved you, his Holy Spirit gave you a certain giftedness, and he gave it to you with the express purpose, as we've seen quite clearly in 1 Corinthians 12. He gave you that gift with the express purpose of using it to serve his body in a specific location. You're not able to use your spiritual gift to serve the universal church in the way God intends for that gift to be used. You cannot minister to believers who are dead and gone. You cannot minister to a believer in a far-off country in the way that God commands you to do that. Sure, you can minister to them by sending money to them. You can minister to a believer in China by praying for him. You can minister to them by taking a mission trip to them, which are all good things, things I'd encourage you to do, provided what you're giving to and who you're going with is solid. But there is so much more that you are commanded to do to believers. You cannot do all that the Lord is commanding you to do to believers of the universal church, but you can do it to believers in the local church. You can only obey Christ fully within the context of the local church. If you cut yourself off from the local church, you will necessarily be living in sin because there will be a whole host of commands that you cannot obey because you're not connected to a local church. So we must use our gifts in service to a local body of believers. Otherwise, we're wasting those gifts. The kind of membership that we've been seeing the Apostle Paul speak of in 1 Corinthians 12 is a participating, a local church membership. 
Becoming a member of the universal church, as we saw, is automatic. It's something the Holy Spirit did to you the moment you were saved. But becoming a member of the local church is not automatic. When you get saved, the Lord doesn't teleport you into a local church. No, becoming a member, a living member of a local church, that is something that you must willingly, consciously, voluntarily, and prayerfully purpose in your heart to do. And you need to do it out of loving obedience to Christ. You need to voluntarily and physically commit yourself to a local body of believers if you are going to practically live out who you are as a member of Christ's body. Without the local church, you will not be able to obey all that our Lord is commanding you to obey. So how do we do that? How do we attach ourselves to the local church? Well, it begins with water baptism. In baptism, what are you doing? You are publicly identifying yourself to others as belonging to Jesus. In baptism, you are saying that you have been united to Jesus through faith in him and that Jesus has baptized you with his Holy Spirit and that the Holy Spirit has made you a member of the universal church. Through baptism, you not only indicate to the world that your loyalties have changed, that you don't play for their team anymore, but through baptism, you also indicate to believers that you are one of Christ's sheep now and that they are responsible to minister to you and you are responsible to minister to them. And just to see this, I want you to turn to Acts chapter 2, where we find the very first example of this. Acts chapter 2, of course, you know, Peter preaches that sermon. But I want us to look at the response of the people to his sermon. Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 37. Now when they heard this, that is, the people heard Peter's message, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? Peter said to them, Repent. And each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. And with many other words, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. And what did the people do? Verse 41, So then, those who had received his word were baptized, then what? And that day there were added about 3,000 souls. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Those early believers were baptized, and then they were added to that local church in Jerusalem. Just as one immediately joins the universal church upon being baptized with the Holy Spirit at conversion, so one should seek to immediately join the local church upon being baptized with water. Water baptism testifies to the spirit baptism you have experienced upon your conversion. This is why when you come to the elders here seeking to become a member of this local church, we ask you, whether or not you've been baptized yet. You need to have publicly identified yourself as a member of Christ's universal body 
before you can rightly become a member of Christ's local body. And if you've not yet been baptized, that is something we would love to walk with you through if you've truly repented and believed in Christ. Though attaching yourself to the local church begins with baptism, it does not end there. That vital attachment continues through regularly assembling together with that specific local church, celebrating the Lord's Supper together with them. Baptism is your initial affirmation that you belong to Christ. The Lord's Supper is that continual reaffirmation that you belong to Christ. It is us testifying that to each other as we gather together. But being part of a body also means faithfully serving that body of believers. Lord willing, we're going to elaborate on the importance of church membership next time, but hopefully you're beginning to see the importance of the local church and the necessity of it in the life of a believer. Scripture has no concept of a believer who is detached from the local church. A believer without a local church is like a finger without a body, or a student without a school, or a child without a family, or a sheep without a flock, or a branch without a tree. Let's pray.